Bookswell Intersections podcast. I'm the host, Cody Sisko, and today I'm here with a special crew of literary community organizers. Rochelle Youssef, who you've all met before, is here. Hi. Dan Lopez is here. Howdy. And we're joined by Sakaya Manning. Hey. And the reason we're all here together again today is that we have been through Lambda Lit Fest 2019, and we have a lot of catching up to do. It was a big week. Dan, uh, your title was officially um, Ambassador, Dan. It was, yeah. Um, as you know, last year I was the event producer. I took a step back this year because of a lot of other obligations, but I stuck around on the steering committee and as an event ambassador. That was a program that we started last year where members of the steering committee um, from Lambda would partner up with the different event organizers, the community event organizers, people like yourselves, to help them with what any sort of logistical or promotional or any of that kind of stuff that we could. Um, we continued the program this year. And I was very happy to be able to do the same, uh, to, to be part of it uh, in that capacity this year. Um, and so I was your guys' ambassador, and for Hank Henderson's The Homocentric event, which I think we'll probably talk about later. Um, and, you know, people on the steering committee were ambassadors for all the rest of the, I think we had 40-some events this year. That's so many. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and it's just amazing to think that we filled the literary calendar in L.A. with queer stuff for a week. That's really Ooh. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. Like, when we started LitFest three years ago, the goal was to um, uncover and celebrate the queer literary history of L.A. Uh, a lot of people, one, don't think of L.A. as a literary town, which is not true. It's been a very literary town for a very long time. And two, there's a lot of queer literary history here. Uh, so we wanted to kind of celebrate all of that as well as have a sort of a little bit of a broader scope too, like just queer literature in general, not just tied to L.A. Um, and each year we kind of find a way to do a new mix of that. Um, and yeah, and that ends up being we have a whole week of programming throughout the city, which is the big goal, and then usually culminates in one final celebration um, of like kind of, you know, the bigger names that people may have, may have heard of in all walks of life, not just from within the L.A. community. This was my um, first time being an organizer for a Lit Fest event. And I got to say, I don't know if we just made our jobs more complicated than it needed to be, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> um, I think it was worth it in the end. I had a really good time. It was probably one of my favorite events I've ever done, um, but definitely a lot of work. I mean, we set ourselves a pretty high bar yes, we did. in terms of how we wanted to organize it and run it. So first of all, I mean, the topic itself, we chose kind of building off what Sakaya had done at the Annenberg um, Beach House during her residency to elevate the works of queer writers of color, building on when you had uh, um, women writers of color. Yes. And I think for me, that was really inspiring to see that the work would continue. And even when we went to AWP and we went to all the different readings, I think that's part of the thing that got us, well, if they can do this, we can step it up and we can make something really great. If we're going to do the work, let's do it right. And I think that's what we sat down and decided because you don't want to halfway do something like this, right? Yeah. And I think that was one of the great parts about Lambda Lit Fest is every event just about had a full room. So no matter where, it shows their need. There's definitely a need. And for our event, uh, there's a desire. And a lot of different kinds of feelings came out. Even though our, ours really wasn't about all the feels or being in our feelings, people did talk about their feelings. I should, I should mention that the theme for LitFest this year was all the feelings. 
feelings. Yeah, we, we had some feelings about that. <laughs> yes. But it didn't matter because we, while we didn't exactly address the topic in a thematic way, which kind of freaked me out when I went to other events and thought, oh my God, they're following the theme. What happened was people did talk about their feelings and it came out not just from the writers, but people in the audience. So it was, yeah, I think it worked out great. So some of the, I mean, some of the things I look back on to gauge how we did, we had 50 people in the audience. Oh, more than that. It, it was yeah, more there, than 50. There was closer to 70 or over 70. I counted several times. <laughs> um, standing room. We had standing room. And, um, you know, the four writers that performed got a good chunk of time to share the work that they chose we were able to kind of share their names in advance so that people were aware that they were going to be there and we hopefully will be able to share some media afterwards so the idea that that there is now a bigger platform for them and that they will be seen and heard is the best outcome that could happen i I just want to jump in and say i really at first i was a little wary of the format you guys chose because it seemed like there were going to be a lot of steps to it but i actually ended up thinking it worked really, really well. And I was so happy you did it that way because it never felt like tired. You're never looking at your watch or anything like that. Like, so can you guys maybe talk a little bit about how as a group you decided to do the, like first talk about what the format was and then also why you chose that format? Well, okay. So the format was a reading by the four uh, writers and artists followed by a discussion with those four writers plus two additional um, community organizers, community members. Um, And even more so, it was really meant to be a discussion with the audience, um, more so than just a panel discussion amongst the uh, members of the panel. Uh, I'll talk about, because I do think they deserve credit for this, um, Natasha Dion's reading series, the um, the Table Lit reading series, did something very similar a year or two ago where they um, had a reading followed by a community discussion and it was hosted by I think Jessica Ceballos who does um, a lot of things in LA but is also a poet writer and uh, does a lot of work with Avenue 50. Um, So they had done something similar and I really liked it for that exact reason too. It felt very interactive and it never felt like okay now it's another reader now it's another reader and, and very like you know, the same thing happening over and over again. So for me, that that's why I wanted something like this to happen. Um, and that was where, for my part, that's where I got the inspiration from. I don't know if, if Cody or Sakai have anything to add to that. I think that for, for me, I wanted to kind of mirror what happened at Annenberg in that once I turned over the power of the event to the writers, it became magical and what we did is we had pre-meetings with the writers and with the community uh, uh, community change makers organizers and we talked about what do you want to talk about what happens in your work what is your life like as a writer as a queer writer of color and it was very fascinating and we sat in Marriott and drank ice water and talked for a couple hours and so we let them dictate most of the program our job was to amplify whatever given the, the platform and amplify whatever they wanted to talk about. We, were, we did not dictate to them what they had to say. And I think that was one of the things that made it so interesting because they live real life every day in academia or as artists or in the library, in the public library system. They live there every day and they know what's happening. They're on the ground. So I think that made a big difference. One of the surprising takeaways from that planning uh, discussion was that 
it was clear early on that we couldn't, we weren't going to be able to limit the conversation just to publishing and the dynamics there. That that issues of of racism and um, sexual discrimination, all of that, cut across being a writer and being a human, and that these were all wrapped up together. So it was for me, you know, I I, I didn't want to drive a certain agenda. And with that conversation, I was like, oh, this is well, this is great. In their hands, this is going to be a really good discussion. I think you guys really pulled it off. It was. <clears throat> it was amazing. I love that. And I especially love the way that um, as part of the program, you kind of spotlighted some community members in attendance in the audience and brought them into the conversation. There was one fantastic um, part that, part that um, Hank Henderson from Homocentric stood up and talked a little bit about how he got his program started uh, and how he did really a call to everyone in the room who is a writer and a wannabe writer or an artist or what have you to make a strong stance to like promote yourself and to like reach out to places you want to be in. Um, and so we were talking a little bit about that before we started recording that I think that's another fantastic thing that came out of LitFest, this like this visibility and this idea that you have to, to some degree advocate for your own access, even while understanding that, like, as you were pointing out, Sakaya, that, um, that access sometimes is a little bit of an intimidating factor. Yes, yes. So what I loved about what, what we did, which was, again, came from Annenberg, and it was kind of a thing that came from a nonprofit. It was an idea someone gave me, was introducing people in the audience and actually placing them there. We, we reached out to people and said, please come, please come. And then we would beg, please come. Because everyone had been to a lot of events already or hosted them. But we wanted them to come because we wanted them to stand up and talk about what they're doing and to make points of connection with people in the room. And it worked. Again, once again, I saw people writing their phone numbers on paper plates and exchanging them and shaking hands and hugging and talking about doing work together. And that's what we wanted. We knew that we weren't going to walk away with there with a finite list of this is how you make intersectionality happen or these are the five steps to get there. No, what we wanted was to begin a conversation and get people thinking differently. And what we feel we accomplished was what we set out to do. And people have continued to talk. People went home and bought books, um, even if they sold all the books there, but then they went home and bought books as well. And they talked about creating uh, new points of doing programs together. Sochi Bermejo wrote an article for women who submit about it. So that just came out and I haven't had a chance to read it. So um, the accessibility part, I think Hank talked about people, everyone, you're invited to come read. And if you, any one of you just reach out to me. And what I was saying is that sometimes as a writer of color, you're not as comfortable going into spaces that you don't feel have been inclusive to you or to people who look like you in the past. And so some of that work has to initiate from the people who own the space already. If that's their space, then they've got to go out and reach out and then people have to start feeling safe and comfortable to come in. And I think that's for any writer of color, but particularly when you're a queer writer of color, you've got the, the double thing at work and everywhere else. So you want to feel safe. Yeah, that's, that's so important. And I think that it's it's not an individual writer's responsibility solely to go out and do that work and ask for access. I think that what we can do as a community and for each other is make that happen. You know, that, that's what, what you did when you hooked up uh, Roxana and Hank to make sure that she was able to read at the first homocentric that she read at, right? Um, and that there's this idea that like, it's 
we're not little individual atoms in this. We're, we're connected to each other. We can help each other. We can make connections where those haven't right, existed. Right. And safety is a big part of that, that feeling of safe. And, and that's what I talk about when I talk about being inclusive and representation. It's not just when people talk about diversity, that doesn't really talk about inclusiveness and representation, right? It doesn't talk about actually connecting with somebody just to be seen is not enough to you have to have that actual conversation the hug whatever it is that, that can get that person to come in i mean i had to even beg uh eugene owens from the la public library to come and when he did he was he said at the end of the night i am so glad i did this yeah. and he has public space he's trying to fill mm -hmm. all the time and people don't know that they can go to him but now they do they can go to him and do programs I think what you bring up about the safety question um, is very pertinent. Um, I thought about it while watching Roxana, who writes a lot. She's documented now. She's a citizen, I believe, now. Um, but she writes a lot from the space of being an undocumented um, queer Latinx woman in this country for a long time and, you know, that journey. Um, and I remember before I knew her current status listening to this and thinking this is a very brave i mean it's very brave regardless but like this is a very brave statement to be getting up there and saying i'm an undocumented person and you don't know who could be in the audience so i think your point of safety it's super important like if you're a writer of color you're an undocumented person and you want to like share your right your work with the world and you want to make that brave stance it's it's in, it's on us as the community organizing these places to make sure that that's a safe place for you. And whatever, whatever you can control to make it safe is something you have to do so that you can invite those people so you can get those voices. Right, exactly. They're very important voices. So, yes. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that the pre-meetings really helped me see is I think we really did make an effort to make each writer feel comfortable and that we were creating a safe space. I mean, I think I said something during the event about like, thank you for trusting us with your words. But I, but like, I really mean that. Like, I you can tell, especially with someone like Roxana who does have that, that past that like you are trusting us to keep you safe right now, um, and to create a space where you feel comfortable. Um. So yeah, I mean, it really is an important thing on the part of an organizer to to create that trust with the people that are coming, but also creating a space where people feel comfortable. In Santa Monica at Annenberg, one of the things that really hit me hard was a lot of the writers who came had never been to the Santa Monica Beach House, had never even felt safe coming to Santa Monica to do readings. And I had writers turn me down because they didn't feel the audience would understand their work. And they didn't want to go someplace and feel alienated. They didn't want to feel that somebody was going to... Uh, either attack their work or their words or in any way question who they are. And so that's why we always talked about safe spaces before, and you did the same thing when we opened ours. This is a safe space, and this is who owns the space tonight, and we have to all be respectful. I think it's a really important thing to do out loud at events like this. I also think the, the reason we did the pre-meetings is not just to reassure the writers that we have their back and to get the information of what they want to talk about it's so they can build trust with each other and so on the night of the event you may have noticed this or not they had a nice rapport with each other and that didn't come from just walking in and doing that it was from the previous meetings that they'd had and i think that's a really important thing i have a sort of unrelated funny anecdote 
I think it's really funny the way that all four of us met and started working together. And I think it's a really good example of what we had wanted this event to accomplish, and hopefully it does. So I met Sakaya at a book club I used to run, which is also where I got to know Dan. Um, And then Sakaya ended up asking me to be a panelist on her um, panel, her event for the Annenberg uh, Fellowship that she's doing. And while I was there, Dan came to that event, and I was talking to she Dan. She invited me to come be an audience shared, member at that same we book shared, club. Yeah, I was in a book club with Dan, and, and we shared French fries. <laughs> <laughs> and while I was there talking to Dan, Cody was talking to Dan because Cody knew Dan, and then that's how I met Cody. And I just think that's Actually, I, know, I, I think knew Cody funny. first. Yeah, but that's how I met him. Because <laughs> Cody runs a writing group, and yes, I went to his yes, writing group. That's right. And so then I invited Cody to come to Annenberg, too. And so Cody came. Did you know Cody before Annenberg? I knew Cody through another mutual friend, but we actually met at a book event that this other mutual friend of ours was doing. That was one of the first that I went to in L.A., and it was because I had been introduced to him, Josh Sabara, through another writer friend. Yeah. So the the way that events make these connections happen that can turn into lasting collaborations is really important. And, you know, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and I, it just speaks to kind of the power of showing up and, and being seen, but also, of course, creating a space where people feel comfortable doing that. Right. So what's the lesson that we think a new, so you're a new writer out there, you have been working on your stuff, you're not connected to a community, you're hearing all this and you're like, I want someone to reach out to me, but I also want to advocate for myself. What's a lesson that we could give that person? I have an idea. One is going to readings and going to community events That's where you don't really say. have to put yourself out totally, but you can go and you can meet people and you can hear other readers read and then have a reason to talk to them like Homocentric or Influx Collective or a myriad of other ones that happen in LA and start doing that first. And from there you start to, or it could be a poets and writers event and you start to meet other writers who then, Hey, come over here. We're doing this or come here where there's a whole writing thing where we sit and write for three hours and drink coffee. And suddenly you're, you're putting yourself out there, but in, in pieces and bits. I think that's one way. And someone at our event, they, they had a really cutesy metaphor for it, but it was like, send the elevator up after yourself. That was Eugene. Elevator down, yeah. yeah. Send the elevator down. And what he, what he meant was like, you know, once you've achieved a certain level of, I guess, you know, success or connection or whatever that like it's, it, it behooves you to, do the same for writers who are coming up behind you. Um, but but I guess the, the lesson, if you're like a, a beginner, is to know that people are ready and willing to do that for you. You just have to you know actually introduce yourself and say, I am a writer. Here's what I do. Do you think there's someone I should be talking to here? You know? Yes. It can be uncomfortable. No, I, I think it is. Um, it is an uncomfortable thing, but I think the writing community is very open. I like the very one of the very first readings I ever did in New York was um, at a queer kind of Latin reading series that a friend of mine had been to and be like, oh, you should talk to this guy. He runs this thing. And this guy's name is Charlie Vasquez. Um, and so I was like, okay, I emailed him a story I'd written. And I was like, I want to be part of your club. You know, I want to be part of this reading. And he immediately wrote back. He's like, yeah, great. You're on the schedule for next time. And I went and like, I read, I had to then write a story. Cause it was like, oh crap, I don't have it. And that story ended up writing really quickly and it ended up being in my first collection of stories, which were all basically stories written expressly to do events in New York when I lived in New York. So I was like, I would go from event to event and be like, I want to read. I just read this other thing. And they'd be like, oh, cool. Uh, you're on the docket. And then I'd have to write something. 
Um, so it's an, not only is it a way to build community, but I think it's also a way to generate work. Like there's, there's the deadline, and writers love and hate deadlines. And they need them. So I have on my notes in front of me about topics we were going to talk about, and I don't think we talked about it in this terminology, but it says community-driven literature. And this came up during our event where we were talking about, you know, that people have different goals with their writing. Sometimes they just want to be heard. Sometimes they want to be published and they want to sell books. Um, or, you know, like as Roxana said, she wanted to be there for her community. And I mean, it's funny that that anecdote that you just shared is kind of the same thing where it's like the words that we're creating are for us to connect with other people. And I don't know, there's something really beautiful about that. There's so much fear, though, around being vulnerable that way. Yes. It's like being naked on the bus. Inside out, somehow. <laughs> With your heart out on your sleeve. Yeah. I ride the bus every day. I do not want someone being naked yeah, on the bus. No, that's not a good thing. <laughs> I also think when people invite you to do things or... So you let's say you've shown up. Now you've gone to a community event and someone says, someone's doing a reading, would you read? Yes. Someone is, so when I did Annenberg, and I, I use it as a frame of reference because it, it was the first public literary kind of programs I did, there were writers who just never wrote me back, never answered me. Uh, some waited too long, so by the time they did, the docket was set, as you'd say, right? And so the, it was too late for them to, I mean, I printed the program, the faces were on the tea towels, so to speak. And so I couldn't add them, but what I did do is invite them to come to the beach house and write all day. And they did. So that anyone who participated or visited, um, in fact, you came to the beach house yeah, and wrote. Yeah. I invited, I shared the uh, residency so everyone would have a chance to write there and have some space where it was quiet, safe and peaceful to write and people did a lot of really great work so even those writers were invited and they came and when they came I talked to them about if all you had to do was say yes you would have done this next time say yes so I think saying yes is really important I agree I think it's one of those as much as writing is about saying something new and defeating cliches like I think a lot of advice on how to be a good writer or how to like be part of the community is very cliche and I think we need to embrace that. Mm -hmm. The whole like Shonda Rhimes just say yes type of attitude that you're talking about like is true. Like we've all I think been in that position where you just decide I'm just going to say yes to opportunities that come my way and I'm going to figure out how to overcome the fear. Or I'm going to figure out how to do the work after I've said yes because we're all capable of much more than we think we're capable of and it's not until you're like forced to do it that you realize that. Yeah, so definitely. Yes. Yeah, especially saying yes to things that make you uncomfortable. Like, well, you know, within limit but like like, for example, being on your panel made me uncomfortable. I was much more used to being the moderator versus, like, a panelist. But I, you know, said yes, had a great experience, and, like, look where we are now. But um, there is a lot of power in saying yes, especially when you're uncomfortable. So our event, you know, it's continued a conversation. We hope to continue it some more. What outcomes do you want to see happen? I, you know, I feel like we kind of held back for this first event our own agenda. But I kind of want to hear from you now. Like, what do you want to see happen next? Um, we're being I, polite. We're being polite. Well, I think that's a hard. It, you know, going back to the idea of doing an event well, it requires a lot of work and a lot of money. Um, so if what I would want to see next is a way for us to do this in a way that's sustainable, um, but that maintains like those standards that we've set, uh, I don't know what that looks like or how that's possible. Um, 
But what I would like to see is more things like this, but in a way that like allows us to actually do them in a way that's feasible and sustainable for us as organizers. And and that includes that that the writers get paid for their time, that people show up and it's a comfortable space. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of and we did we did the promotion in advance of the event to make sure that people knew about it. Um, and I think we opened the door to do more partnerships with community spaces. And I think we started doing that by having conversations with libraries and with the armory. And I talked to a lot of people who have access to space in Pasadena. We would love to be able to do that in every community because writers and audiences deserve to be in places where they can be comfortable while they're having this experience. Because the environment, the ambiance, is important to the overall experience. And we just shouldn't be stuck in an alley someplace, right, where we're all sitting on folding chairs that are broken. We should be in places where there's um, lighting and there's people can spread out and have a nice evening. So underwriting that is what we ended up doing, most of it, except for what we got through in-kind donations, including the armory. And, it, and I think Rochelle is right. We we would like to do it so it's sustainable. Uh, I would also like to be able to do things like in conversation with and have writers come and talk, uh, sort of like what Romans and other places do, but do it in places that are unusual, different, with writers who, who matter to us, the work that matters to us, as people who want to bring intersectionality to the forefront. All right, we've, well, we've got a lot to work on then. I feel like some good things came, though, afterwards because of what people are doing now and people are still talking about it and people have forged new relationships. So in those way, I feel really good about I'd love more of that, yeah. that right there. I mean, I feel like I just took one breath after the event and we're still at that moment of like, okay, now what's next? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of good stuff to come. So Sakai Manning, Dan Lopez, and Rochelle Youssef, thank you so much for being here, and we'll continue this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're going to get started with B.A. Williams. B.A. Williams is a queer writer and performer from East Long Beach, California. She holds an MFA in creative writing and is currently working on a novel-length manuscript and poetry collection. B.A co-curates and hosts Unfatable, a requiem of Sandra Bland, and is the content manager for Love by Her, a digital storytelling platform that showcases and celebrates black queer love. Her poetry and prose focuses on all things other with a heavy emphasis on blackness, womanhood, and queerness. Please welcome B.A. How's everybody doing? Uh, This piece, or it's a shorter piece, it's called Growing Pains. They say when your baby is growing a head full of hair, you get heartburn real bad. So bad you think the devil found a way up inside you. I cut all my hair and watch the dead parts of me crowd around my feet. When my grandma looks at me, the world appears in her pupils. And still she rubs her chest. This is called Diagnosed. I didn't love the bruised blackberry more than the plum of my cheek. I didn't smiled at my man even when his mind wanders to a lover lighter than me. His tongue is black as the back of my neck because it's tired of holding his lies and me. 
after he done i scrub i bleed i sleep my body ache like a fiend without how you learn to say i love you and mean it because i can't form the sentence i done loved around babies more tender than neck bones but the way they run from me i know i ain't seasoned them the same pain feel like a smile when the heat of it rides in my belly i know the sun and god rest in me i throws the oil but i don't see god in the mirror i look pregnant the doctors say a watermelon-sized tumor is growing in my belly, sitting on my uterus, and I wonder real hard if this white man called this cancer a watermelon so I could know the taste. Um, and then I'll finish with this one. It's called, uh, it's called self-hate. Four in the morning, a white woman crosses my mind. I don't want her to be white in my mind. I need her to be black. So black, her skin blends in my burgundy sheets. So black, only shea butter prevents the white ash from spreading. So black when I'm with her, her steps, her breath, her fear is mine. But she is white, and she loves me, and I hate her. In my bed, in my home, in my poems, in my sister's line of sight, in my grandma's expectations, in my mother's guilt, but I still ring her. And I stay on the line, though the trill in my ear is wheezing and screaming from sour bodies and scoured faith, rocking and swaying in foreign waters. But she answers, and her voice is the wind snapping at the sails. We are still afloat. Before the words escape my body, she knows the time it takes to kill the little black girl's body that dreams of her. Thank you. Next, we have Evan Kleekamp. Evan lives in Los Angeles where they founded Noor Research Studio. With Kim Calder, they directed Le Fig Press from September 2017 until July 2019. Evan has performed, lectured, and given talks at CalArts, Otis College, the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, the Poetic Research Bureau, and Columbia College Chicago. They are the author of two chapbooks, 13 Theses on State-Sponsored Black Death in America, and Once Upon a Time I Was Michael Thomas Tarrant. Evan is currently editing an artist monograph and writing a novel. Please welcome Evan Kligam. don't like introducing work, but I feel with this piece it's kind of necessary. So I'll, I'll say a few things and then I'll just get inside of it. Um, so this is a book I've been working on for two years that I keep changing, and I keep changing it because I keep changing the subject, um, meaning the person. Uh, but typically it's been about painting or painters. Um, and so it begins with all these stipulations that happen at the beginning of the book, but we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, so stipulation three, an account in which the letter K refers to any number of non-biological women and no single non-biological woman at a given time. Kate dreamt she entered the iceberg again, marked her calendar, which suggested this was the eighth time. But why had the dream fit so cleanly into three sections with each iteration? To think all those years ago, it had started as a suicide note she wrote to a long-deceased Franz, and then grown into a volume in which her desires, until recently latent, metastasized. The paragraphs appeared in a flash, disappeared before she could write them down. That part wasn't unusual. And when she woke, Ruth, the cat, stepping across the pillow above her head, gazed at her curiously. Kay got up from the bed and went to her desk. 
She found her notebook and wrote, if a civilization dies, check the temperature of its art. Thank you. writer and storyteller and current resident of Long Beach, California. His first sh fiction short, short story collection, Dark Corners, debuted in 2019 through Running Wild Press. Dark Corners received a star rating by Kirkus and was recently included in the swag bag for jo George Lopez's Celebrity Golf Tournament. He currently works at Demand Progress, leading online campaigns against the outreach of government surveillance, overreach, excuse me, of government surveillance and is a lead training associate with the Oakland-based Center for Story-Based Strategy. Please welcome me. Yeah. Thank you everyone for coming. Also, a real quick reminder that many of us are selling our books after this. Um, so I'm gonna read a short excerpt, just the beginning of this story from my collection. If you're curious to see how it ends, the book is on sale. <laughs> And I also normally don't like to give a lot of preamble about the story, so the title is called, I Want You. <clears throat> that first year, the clinic told me to pick a time, an easy time that I wouldn't forget, and take the pills then, every day like that, for the rest of my life. HIV is really good for clearing out your schedule, especially that first year. Guys don't call, or they don't know, and then they find out, and then they don't call. My mother called, almost four times a day. Did you take your meds, she'd ask. Yes, Mom. Maybe you should take one again, just in case. Mom, it doesn't work like that. I know, and then she breathed long into the phone receiver, but maybe you should, anyway. <laughs> Over time, retroviral medication tightens facial muscles. I get away with it because I'm Asian. My eyes already look tied at the ends. The meds smoothed my forehead lines, and I swear to God stomped what little facial hair growth I had down to a slow crawl. Today, I look younger than I did when I contracted. It's a damn shame. I used to take my pills at night, right before bed. Not like there was much to do in my bed anyway. Right around 11, I'd throw down the white and brown capsules, chuck some water, and dripped off. I used to dream crazy adventures, flying, theme park rides, vampires with cheekbones sharp enough to cut you. Now I dream about holding hands with a guy who likes me. I dream about eating ice cream with someone. The sun beats down on us, and it's a rush to finish our cups before the whole thing melts. My dreams are fucking eHarmony commercials. <laughs> I've been positive for five years. They make iPhone apps for it now. 11 o'clock and my phone would buzz. I pick the Uncle Sam icon, and he shakes his big index finger at me. I want you to take your pills. It seemed funny at the time. A Thursday after work, I'm with my coworker Wendy, who is single, turning 30, and has never been to a gay bar. I can't talk my way out of it, and now we're screaming at each other over the thudding bass. She gets jostled by gym bunny clicks, and I'm getting groped a couple of times by drunk twink kids. A skinny Asian is like Pez candy for them. <laughs> Scream to the bartender for the third time. Wendy's loose after two vodka tonics and sets me up on a standing table on the outside patio so she can play matchmaker for me. My phone buzzes in the middle of some investment banker telling me about his trip to Fiji. It's supposed to win me over that he's okay with the rice. When I flip my phone open, Uncle Sam's staring back at me. I excuse myself to the bathroom. I shuffle through my messenger bag twice before I realize that since I wasn't planning on coming out tonight, 
My pills are at home, next to my toothpaste and an empty cup for water. Wendy, I gotta go. No, Wendy's passed loose and into full-on drunk. Do you need a ride, the investment banker says, or I can call a cab. No, stay here, Wendy says, tugging on my shirt and then leaning her weight on it. She almost pops a button and the banker takes an eye shot at my chest. Let me give you a ride, he says. You might need help with her. I want to stay, Wendy huffs. She leans back and crosses her arms over her chest, but she overdoes it and knocks a couple of drinks off the table behind her. Bitchy queens narrow their eyes at her. <laughs> Come on, says the banker. In, the fi in five years, I've never not taken my pill on time. Not that I don't think about it. I was that kind of kid who would do exactly what I was told not to do, just to see if the world would really end like every adult made it out to be. <laughs> Go figure. We propped Wendy in the back seat of the banker's black sedan, and then I clipped myself into the shotgun seat. Uncle Sam wants me again, buzzing loud. The banker starts the car. That's not an ex-boyfriend, is it? Not entirely. I feed a button to Uncle Sam so shut up and then tell the banker to head south towards my apartment. Wendy obliterates some pop song lyrics for a, a verse and a chorus and then falls asleep. The banker says, I'm glad I met you tonight, and I just nod. It's 11.13. Do you go out often, he says? I don't, not usually. Yeah, me neither. My right leg starts jackhammering and I stare at the clock on the dashboard. The banker notices and takes his free hand to my knee to settle me, and it's the first time a man's actually touched me in years. I can feel the weight and heat from his hand, and for a second I can almost remember what it feels like to be with a man. When I glance at him, his face is blushed red. The banker's lips creep a tight smile, and he parts them, about to say something. When Wendy's belch from the backseat turns into projectile vomit, I get, I get splashed on the back of my neck and it trickles down my back. Then Wendy starts to cry. We pull over into a gas station. It's 11.17, Uncle Sam's buzzing again, and Wendy's into a full-on wail. The banker rushes to get paper towels, and I peel myself out of the, out of the seat to get away from the smell. Night air chills my wet shirt, and I'm shivering. He comes to me with the towel first, rubs my neck, pats down my back. Look, I start to tell him, no, 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 it's okay. He says, these things happen. It's 11.20, I can't catch my breath. My stomach feels bottomed out and I'm dizzy. This isn't a med reaction. This is what happened five years ago in the clinic. What happened two months later when I had to tell my mom. My phone buzzes, I want you. Thank you. We're gonna hear from Roxana Preciado next. Yeah. Yeah. Some of you may have been at the Lambda Lit Fest event, Homocentric, on Tuesday where Roxana read, and um, it's a delight. There's actually not too much of Roxana that one can hear. Roxana Preciado is an indie author and artist recognized for her work as a poet and activist. Sorry, I wanted to add, I also got teary-eyed on Tuesday, so just prepare if you're <laughs> sensitive at all, like, prepare. Um, born in Jalisco, Mexico, she migrated to the U.S. at four years old and has been writing poetry since the age of 12. She has recently released three books of poetry, with the most recent being Hood Educated. Preciado uses poetry and her story to support community engagement and activism around DACA and as a survivor to raise awareness about violence against women. She often speaks to Latinx and LGBTQ plus youth to help them find their own voice and tell their stories. 
Preciado is completing her graduate degree while continuing advocacy work for her various communities. She currently resides in Los Angeles, California with her wife and son. Please welcome Roxana. Grammatically, bilingually incorrect. Don't say me, say I instead. Mujer, ya cállate. Your words are offending the English language. Mexican immigrant, child arrival. Ya llegamos, I am here. Mexico to America, we to I, ESL, English as a second language. Public schools, HUD educated. I will never be able to master the English or Spanish language. Forever, at a loss for words. What is this language I think and speak in then? Could it be a third language? One developed out of survival instinct. Those who can't speak, don't eat. Soy humana. Yo bebo, yo como, y todavía tengo hambre. This hunger for knowledge has led me to college. There, I found a passion for collecting. In my possession are a comp compilation of English words on paper. And in the center are Spanish words, my name on display. Like me, bilingual are my three college degrees. Unacceptable language expressions. You say I'm uneducated. From homeless struggles to universities, I'm more than educated. I know better. You all won't silence me. Thank you. This is new. Um, I'm working on my fourth book right now. And this is um, a reflection on some of the news and what it's doing to my community. And um, for those of you people of color and even just those in touch with your humanity, reading the news. It's re-triggering and it's hard for us to get up. At least continue and keep our dignity when, I see, when we see our children being treated like this. This is called children at play. Society is plagued, hate epidemic. The fallen, politely said, another child's dead. Caged and afraid, while those in power continue playing children's games. Tantrum displays. I'm angry and afraid. I hold my child tight and pray for better days. Collateral damage, the fallen, caution, children are at play. full swing Bookswell Intersections listeners, and the literary calendar has been absolutely packed with exciting events. 
I'm Shannon Egan, Bookswell contributor, and this week I'm featuring events that deal with facets of the entertainment industry. Music, movies, and of course, books. Because we at Bookswell firmly believe LA is a publishing town in its own right. Up first, tonight, which is Tuesday, October 22nd, if you're listening on release day, Jake Brennan will be at Chevalier's at 7 p.m. presenting his rock and roll true crime story collection, Disgraceland. He'll be chatting with podcasters slash authors Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark of My Favorite Murder. And the book actually expands upon stories highlighted in his own podcast, also named Disgraceland. This collection is at times hilarious, often weird, and sometimes downright macabre. Chock full of rock stars behaving badly. Next, on Thursday, October 24th at 7 p.m., Arthur Dong will be at Vroman's to discuss and sign Hollywood Chinese, the Chinese in American feature films. This stunning book is a guided tour through Hollywood history, spanning from some of the earliest movie sets in Chinatown to contemporary blockbuster hits like Crazy Rich Asians. And finally, on Wednesday, October 29th at 8 p.m., Skylight Books will present rising literary star Saeed Jones in conversation with THE Roxanne Gay at the Barnsdale Gallery Theatre. Award-winning poet Jones interweaves poetry and prose in this coming-of-age memoir, The Fight for Our Lives. Tackling the intersection of race, sexuality, and power, this one-of-a-kind book has cemented Jones as an essential writer of our time. This is a ticketed event, but I think it will be fully worth the cost of entry. Honestly, I'm shocked it hasn't sold out already, so run, don't walk to the Skylight website or brown paper tickets to purchase a ticket now. As I mentioned before, our Bookswell calendar is literally packed with events at the moment, so be sure to check out bookswell.club for more info on any and all LA literary happenings. And if you aren't already following us on Instagram and Twitter, at Bookswell Club, we've been running some fantastic giveaways for our followers. And who doesn't love free books? <laughs> so make sure you're not missing out. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>